Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Lanham Napier joins us today from Boston. Lanham is CEO and co-founder of Build Group, which has invested in companies including Dignify, Benefit Focus, and Cybrary, amongst others. Prior to Bill Group, Lanham was CEO of Rackspace and founder of Project 23. Lanham, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, tell us about your backstory and your your path to tech. Sure. My path to tech started at my home. I am actually the son of a computer science professor. And so my dad was a computer science professor at Rice University. He then went on to found the entrepreneurship program at Rice University. So at the age of 40, I finally discovered I'm only doing what my dad programmed me to do. That it's basically, you know, this tech entrepreneurship thing. So I've been at it for a while now. And then look, my first uh, investment I ever made, I used to have a paper route in middle school and I'm kind of old. So call this the mid eighties. And I plowed all my paper route money into two names, Microsoft and Intel. Just got lucky, dude. (laughs) That's one of those things where a son of a computer science professor's playing around Microsoft products. I'm like, hey, this is pretty good. You know? Made the, you know, I think it was a total of like a thousand bucks each because that's all, you know, papers were cheap back then. And I, mean, I still have that stock today. Wow. So that's what got me rolling. Wow. You're a good picker. That could help I you. Was in just this lucky. <laughs> that's pure luck. I think really, you want to know how that got picked? My dad bought an Apple, brought it back to the house. We loaded some Microsoft software on it. I was like, well, this is cool. Let's buy that. That's all it was, man. Wow. That's simple. How did your path take you to, to Rackspace? Well, so when I, uh, I've kind of come full circle. So my first job out of undergrad, I actually went to Wall Street, did investment banking and, and loved it, but, you know, did not find fulfillment in it. For me, it was really about, man, I wanted to stay with the money and go build the company instead of just cut a deal. Uh, so after I got out of graduate school, I moved to San Antonio, Texas, and this fellow by the name of Kit Goldsberry gave me a job. And I worked for him for a couple of years in his family office making investments. And then Rackspace started down the street. And it's a small world. And I gave him a good pitch and they hired me. Unreal. So how long was your uh, your tenure there as CEO? Oh, gosh. I mean, I was, a, I, was, I was blessed to be part of that company. I mean, I was there for 14 or 15 years. And we went from, you know, 2 million in sales to 2 billion. Crazy. Oh, dude, that's incredible. I mean, look, for a business nerd like me, I mean, that's... Hell, I don't know what else would have been better. What I mean, what an incredible blessing. Yeah. And I'll tell you the funniest thing. So, you know, I started there, the company I was, uh, my wife was pregnant with our son, who's our oldest. And so, like, my son was born about the same time I went to Rackspace. And there's an incredible parallel between the development of a human and the development of a company, which shouldn't be a surprise because companies are just an amalgamation of humans. I mean, I remember my son, he'd have these amazing moments 
at like three, he'd say like high dad. I'd be like, oh, this is incredible. And then right or that, he'd go knock over everything over. Same way building a company, dude. Like you have this amazing moment. You win a customer. Next moment, all the electricity goes out. Sure, <laughs> it's like, sure. ah, I mean, it's the same kind of same kind of stuff. I've been there. I've been there. I hear you. So, you know, when you were taking that journey, I know that you took venture capital, right? So you're not yeah. just a founder. You're not just somebody who built a unicorn company, so to speak. But you also took on outside funding from, you know, big tier one, Sequoia, Norwest, and others. Um, yep. What was the the biggest challenge, you know, in growing sort of that venture scale company? Biggest challenge, you know, there were so many. So I would say the the number one challenge was probably me in elevating my game to be up to the task. I mean, it's hard, right? I mean, you know, we were a company growing seventy percent a year. So if I want to stay ahead of it, I'd have to do my own personal development greater than seventy. The only hack I figured out for that is. You know, I got had to get really good at identifying talent and hiring talent that were better and more talented than I was and just figuring out how to keep those things aligned in a way that we would move forward. You know, it, I figured if anybody listening to the show is in a leadership position, man, it's hard to truly develop one's own skills at a high rate, right? I mean, you know, most of us aren't blessed with that capability. So the way to do it is just to develop a team at a high rate and just, you know, have our skills go through those team members and have those team members pull it. So it's like, I mean, I figured when you're the leader, your job is to build the team. The team's going to build the company. What sort of takeaways would you leave the audience with on how to select the right folks for your business? Okay. So man, there's some great uh, bodies of work out there. So rule number one, never create something if somebody else already did it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to talent selection, there's some gurus out there to figure this out, you know? And so well, I, I it down for us. Yeah. Okay. So I use a structured interview process. Okay. I follow the top grading method created by Jeff Smart Very and good. Randy Street. Okay. Friends of mine. All right. As far as a diagnostic, you know, I tend to use Gallup's uh, method around strengths fighters. Yep. So you can pay Gallup, uh, you know, depending on how many interviews you do, you may have to pay a couple grand or whatever, but they'll <laughs> yeah. really, they'll really get into the details on somebody. And then my favorite data source is actually all the references, you know, cause it's for me, what happens is, when I'm sitting across from you and I want to work for you, man, I'm selling, dude. I'm selling. Okay. And everybody is. So my tactic there is we're going to start at 9 a.m. and we're probably going to go till 9 p.m. So we're going to have a couple meals together. And my gift, I got high endurance. So after about three hours of that structured interview stuff with me, you can't really bullshit me anymore. <laughs> and then we're going to start doing case studies and we're going to really get into it. Then afterward, whatever references you provide, I'll probably call half of them. But really what I want to go do is figure out all the people you haven't provided. Right. And LinkedIn's an amazing tool for that now. Right. I mean, you know, God bless that thing showing up. I mean, you can figure out whoever anybody ever worked with. And it's just about you got to get people that were junior, people that were peers, people that were bosses. I find the most valuable stuff the peers. The peers. Yeah. Yeah. Peers tend to be more constructive in their feedback. Right. Because the, the subordinates, they either had a great experience or a bad experience. Yep. For the boss, the boss here had a great experience or a bad experience. The peers are like, okay, here's what's really going on, <laughs> right? Objective. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, the peers are cool, you know? It's like, man, people suck up to the boss, trick the boss all the time. Right, politicking and, and everything else. Yeah, man, man, people are amazingly skilled at that stuff. Interesting. So do you apply that same approach with uh, the startup founders you're investing in, you know, checking references? I do, yeah, I do. I mean, I... uh Look, I'm a nerd, man. I like that stuff. Because the problem here's one of my biggest weaknesses. Turns out I really actually like people. 
Turns out some of them, I even love them. And so I have great empathy for what, you know, visionary founders are trying to do, man. There's a lot of glare in that conversation for me. I want to believe you. I'm a sucker. I'm like the Forrest Gump of wanting to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Just because so, you love somebody doesn't mean you can work with them, right? Exactly. So I got to go get the data afterward. Very good. Very good. Well, how about the the development side? You know, how how do you think about coaching up, developing, and making sure people kind of fulfill that potential they got? Yeah, so that's a good one. So, I mean, first, core belief, people are are super talented. You know, there's a divine spark in them. And we just got to create conditions around them where they can play to things where they're naturally strong. So step one, let's get a real good diagnostic of where your talents reside. After we get a diagnostic, we actually got to agree on it, you know, because it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how people have denial about what they're actually good at, <laughs> you know? So we got to pierce through that veil of deniability. Once we're through that veil and have a good diagnostic, then we can be intentional about how to stretch you. Part of that stretch is understanding uh, the relationship between stress and performance. So increasing levels of stress, we all perform a little better. We hit some kind of point, though, and we start to hit, oh, crap, you know, stress out meltdown mode, <laughs> continue to crank up the stress, and we will actually retreat. And everybody's a little different. You know, some people like to have 20% stretch time. Other people want to have 80% stretch time. You know, I think that's really a, a personality kind of deal for folks. All right. So for me, it's just, look, let's get the diagnose, diagnostic on where we're strong. Let's agree to that. Let's be intentional about how to stretch you. Let's be intentional about how to invest in you. I like that. A leader and a mentor, I learned quite a bit from uh, Larry Colt Jr., who ran a company called Danaher for a number of years and now runs uh, GE. He talked to us often about the difference between stretch and strain. And as long as you're in that stretch mode, like you're performing really high. But if yeah, if strain goes on too long, that's you know that's where you can things can get tricky. Yeah, the tendon's going to rip. I never heard stretch and strain before. I'm going to use that. That's good. There it is. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Bill Group. What's what's the uh, investment thesis? Oh, man. All right. So uh, it's super cool. All right. So so here's the deal. While building Rackspace, you know, we were fortunate to have amazing investors. What I wanted to create here at Bill Group, the mission and purpose is for every company to have a permanent piece of capital so that company can achieve its potential. So we have great capital markets in our country. The problem is they're geared to three and five years. So the first thing a Bill Group is in every cap table, let's have a permanent piece, a piece that's willing to go 15 or 20 or 25 years. When we have that permanent piece, now we can strategically play a super long-term game, all right? So the stuff we're interested in are, you know, growthy SaaS companies that we know a bunch about. And we're also interested in situations where companies have plateaued, where we can apply our leadership chops, you know, our leadership experience to help reaccelerate the growth. That's where we hang out. So for most companies we're looking at, they start, you know, six, seven, eight million of revenue kind of thing. You know, we just did a, a, a big pipe, which you referenced, you know, in your, or in your opening remarks. You know, that's a much larger company. That's a publicly traded company, you know, but uh, there we feel like, hey, we, you know, I've been on the board for a while. I feel like we've got a good understanding. You know, we can do some good work there. All right. And so, so that's us. I mean, the, the way to think about us is we've got some entrepreneurial scar tissue. We love companies and senior teams. We want to create the conditions where they play to their strengths and can, can play a long-term game. And look, as you're discovering, I'm an acquired taste, man. I'm not for everybody, right? There are plenty of entrepreneurs out there that don't want to play a long-term game. And I get that, right? You know, I'm just, I'm 49 years old. I still feel like I got, you know, I'm only halfway through life. I can still play a long-term game. 
right? You know, I'm betting on what was Ricky Bobby's quote, you know, between advances in medicine and this and that, you know, no reason to think I can't live 150. You know, I don't, I mean, I may not get that good. All right. But I still feel like I'm at halftime. Okay. So let's figure out how to play a long game and support these leadership teams to go do something special. Well, your point's well taken, right? Because we see there's there's a disparity between these mission-driven founders and, and the mercenaries out there. And some people are just on that quick hamster wheel. They want to keep flipping things every 12 to 18 months and blitz scaling or whatever else just to get to the next level. And then there are those founders that you know have true commitment, long-term commitment, and can think of nothing else than to spend the next maybe decade of their life working on you know the business that they're building. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I, I think that if you think about human greatness, it requires the alignment of a lot of different issues, you know? And so look, our job as an investor and just friends, coaches, mentors is help create the alignment on those issues, man. Then they can keep going. Then they can pull it off. And greatness is this very elusive thing. We capture it for a moment and then it's gone. Right. And then we got to struggle to find greatness again. Okay. We had to struggle to reproduce those conditions to generate those outcomes. And that's why this is so joyous. Well, and it's amazing. I mean, just in this career, we get to partner with people that are, you know, we can help them fulfill their potential and their dream, you know, as a capital partner and in some cases as a, a coach or just a cheerleader or just a, yeah. you know, a sounding board. <laughs> yeah, it's basically, you know, to me, what's so, what what's, um, if you really want to put the math to it, right, talk statistics, all of us are completely irrational nut jobs. <laughs> Right? It's just how it goes, man. Every these irrational nut jobs happen to be right. And when they're right, man, you get this asymmetric thing that climbs out of the primordial soup. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> like, you know, this is us. I mean, this is the essence of entrepreneurship. You know, it's human capital, financial capital, intellectual capital all coming together to climb out of the primordial soup to create this amazing complex system, you know, known as a successful company. I mean, I just think it's fantastic. That's good. That's good. So, Lanham, you talked about permanent capital, and I've I've read you know some of your material about long term capital. What does what does that mean? Well, so here here's the deal. When we were putting Build Group together, you know, I, I'm I'm pre- pretty focused on playing a long game. Is how I put it. And if you look at our capital markets, you know, most investors want to be in something. They'll say five to seven years. In my experience, as soon as things are going well after three, everybody kind of wants to hit the exits. All right. Um, or at least start contemplating the exits. And that's okay, man. These The capital markets we have are amazingly effective because they handle that kind of stuff, all right? And so my perspective on it is I just wanted there to be another lane, a complementary lane that was able to go the distance because I just think the time to build a truly great company extends beyond five to seven years. And that as the entrepreneur building a company, you bring on one chunk of money for five years, well, you're six and seven, they want out. So you got to go do a deal to get them out. And all this stuff just creates friction and transaction costs. Now, I would tell you, I think those friction and transaction costs are worth it because it keeps leadership teams focused and companies progressing. All right. So I think this is important. I just think by having a permanent piece that's there the whole time, we can build greater institutional context and provide a tailwind for 15 or 20 years. Now, the reality is I'm human. I'm fallible. I'm mortal. Nothing's permanent, dude. I mean, nothing's permanent. All right. But the way we set up our company is that I went to a bunch of entrepreneurial families and said, hey, man, 49 years old, going on another 15 year mission. 
It turns out the only people that sign up for 15-year missions are people that already went on one. That's it. If nobody's <laughs> been on a 15-year mission again, they're like, what the hell is that? I don't want to go on a 15-year mission. I want to go on like a 15-month mission and buy an island. You know, that doesn't, I don't know how to do that. What I know how to do is, you know, tortoise and hare, I'm more the tortoise for 15 years. Okay. And, and so when we talk about permanent capital, it's an expression of, look, man, we're here for the duration with you. And when you build a company, things are going to go up and down. We understand that. Just know that there's this piece of your cap table that's here the whole time, basically until the CEO says, hey, man, time to go. When the CEO says, man, we, I've taken this as far as we can go. We can't go any further. Then, I, you know, information is asymmetric. I believe the insider. What's been the biggest surprise for you in, in the difference between running a company versus running, you know, an investment firm? Okay. Yeah. You know, there are a few things. The number one surprise is that, you know, the company, they're just more people. And, you know, maybe this is amplified in a COVID world, but geez, Louise, do I miss being able to high five people all day? I just freaking miss it. It was fun. It was fun. All right. So now I'm in a much smaller thing. All right. So look, we have camaraderie and kinship and all that kind of stuff but it's a little different, right? So that's been surprise number one. Okay. I knew I loved the team. What I, what has surprised me is I didn't realize how much I'd miss like the extended folks and I miss them. Okay. Um, so that, that's just kind of personal to me. I think the, the second thing which has surprised me is just how there's this whole buzzword bingo thing going on in investor land. Okay. Where, uh, Man, it's just they they come up with these terms. And I'm just like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, and and then the, the third surprise I'd have is uh yeah, you know, just the back to the irrational nut job country, okay, where, where you and I hang out in. And look, I'm an irrational nut job. I get it. Okay. Uh, but you know, I meet some of these entrepreneurs and God bless them. They're just like, I mean, I met with this one fella and he said, you know, the worst thing that can happen here is we might just sell to Google for 400 million. I was like, that's the worst thing. That's like, yeah, that's the worst thing. Like, you know, worst thing's happened to me today is I probably, I just might get hit by a bus crossing the street when I go to watch. I mean, that would be a worse thing. I could fall down the stairs. That would be worse. You know, it's like, come on, dude, that's the worst thing. You know, so there's a little bit of that. It's like, oh my God. And I don't know if, if, you know, I have to crank up my filter or my discount rate for when the, the guy's just that passionate or just that full of it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, there's plenty it's of an that. Interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty of people that hubris and everything else just kind of distorts reality, and you come across some strange stuff in this in this field. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, but a lot of good. But stuff it's too. fun. It's look, fun. I just think this is you know, if you look at a bell curve distribution, the further you go out on that curve, right, the more interesting amplified <laughs> outcomes. Yeah, right. That's just all it is. Yeah. I mean, that's all. I mean, it takes that. I think for people to summon the courage. You know, to go take on an Amazon or a Google today, right? I mean, you know, it's sort of like uh, you know, our country's always been blessed with this frontier. You know, I think part of our you know, history shapes where we are today, okay? And I think part of one of the blessings the United States of America had was this frontier culture that on the other side of the horizon was a new life you could go make for you and your family, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's what entrepreneurship is today. That's that frontier culture, man. On the other side of the horizon, you could go start this other company. You know, you can move your stars, you know, all that stuff is super powerful. It's part of, it's part of our ethos. Love it. Love it. So, so how involved are you getting with the, uh, you know, the founders and the companies that you guys back? You know, it depends. I, I tell you my preferred methodology, all right. And then my preferred methodology is driven by my personal constraints. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, let's just be, let's just be straight. All right. So for people that want help, right. That want me to, to, to show up and be supportive in order for me to be at my best, it's basically, you know, let's have a call once a week, once a month, let's meet for an afternoon. Cause I actually like to work, mm-hmm. you know, I just don't want to contemplate. And then every one of those third monthly meetings, let's call it a board meeting. Okay. So for me, you know, I've, I've been on a number of boards in my life and I'm just going to flat out tell you, I think most board meetings stink. Agreed. They aren't value added. You know, some dude reads the book on his plane, asks a couple smart questions at the beginning, goes back to do an email under the desk. You know, it's all that kind of crap, right? <laughs> so you know, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Woo, woo, that, was a, that was a whammy question, you know? So I just kind of feel like, man, I just think a lot of that's theater. All right. So for me, man, I really care about these things. I want to help folks. And so it's about let's actually do work together. Um, so our, our rhythm is this weekly, monthly, quarterly. And basically, we just turned that working session on a monthly one. Every third one, we call it a board meeting and add a little corporate governance action to it. So that's how I like to work. You know, now for, for people that um, don't need uh, that kind of a, a assistance or help, you know, and all this is on demand, right? I mean, this is not me interrupting their day. I mean, this is, you know, what they desire. And, you know, we can be a lot more passive. It's just what I find, you know, back to my own sort of sweet spot, back to a diagnostic of strength. I need to build up contextual information for a while and get used to seeing the numbers and the metrics for a while and meet people across the company for a while before I'm super valuing those monthly meetings. You know, like by the time I get to that third or fourth month, I know enough to where I can really help you. Prior to that, you know, it's just pattern recognition. And, and I have lots of friends with big brains and, you know, they sit on 10 or 12 boards and they say, look, Lane, it's all pattern recognition. And, and I believe them. I mean, I, I do think there's part of that. Um, for me, though, I just desire a little bit more. Absent, you know, the situation with the pandemic and COVID, do you uh, have a preference on going to the entrepreneur and kind of seeing their business and their environment or, you know, meeting kind of just the two of you and connecting on that level? Does, does it matter? It does to me. I mean, I'm so sick of talking to screens. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, <laughs> ah! All right. So, so I'm just breaking bread with people, you know, I mean, I like to, I mean, part of that recruiting method we talked about earlier, I would bust out a bottle of truth serum with them. <laughs> you know, once they got a couple glasses of vino down their throat, you know, the things, the stories get more interesting. It changes. <laughs> it changes, man. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so, so look, I don't have a great answer for, I mean, we've made a couple investments, you know, during COVID and we're doing it all digitally. Yeah. All right. But there were things I knew about and, and clearly, you know, people are increasing trust levels and getting comfortable with just digital interactions, which I find fascinating. Okay. And so, you know, and, and we're doing the same, but I do look forward to actually seeing people and talking to them and, you know, pressing the flesh. I couldn't agree with you more. It's funny you say it. Cause we just, uh, we signed a term sheet with an entrepreneur, uh, two days ago and he happens to be, he runs his business in the area in greater Chicago. And so we're going to do an outside closed dinner and it's the first closed dinner I've, I've gone to and shit seven months plus and it feels like this refreshing thing it's like oh we can get the whole the whole team is coming which doesn't always happen but everyone's just kind of excited to uh you know get together break some bread and of course safe manner yeah man put it under the big tent (laughs) there you go why not (laughs) right Right? no i just think it's also for all of us i mean i just think part of being alive is experiencing that stuff right you know 
Well, I mean, we're all humans here, right? This is not just a financial yeah. exercise, especially venture. It's a very yeah. human business. You know, I, I wanted to ask you this before I forget, but how do you guys, you, I know you've got this fee light model. I'm not sure I understand exactly how it works, but I know your management yep. fees kind of either get eliminated or step down. How, how does that aspect work? Okay. Yeah. Admittedly, we're still trying to figure it out too, man. Okay. So it, it's basically the, the way our structure works is um, declining fees over time. All right. And the, the thesis there is that we're going to add so much value to companies that in some ways we could potentially get integrated in them. Right. In other ways, you know, we'll have enough exits to, to pay for ourselves out of our carry. Okay. So that, that's how we think about it. And so for build group, you know, our shareholders are, are all entrepreneurial families, you know, and so my family, uh, you know, my family being me, you know, we, <laughs> look, we invested a big chunk into the company. Okay. At least it's a big chunk for us. All right. So yeah, man, I like low fees. All right. So it's like, so it's a little bit weird. I'm working for myself, but I don't want to pay myself. You know, this gets a little bit confusing <laughs> as we, yeah. as we have these midnight conversations. All right. But, but the thesis is just, you know, how can we get super efficient and how can we try to create a deeper sense of alignment with our shareholders by driving down fees? Very good. Very good. And then, you know, I, uh, I was fortunate. So I pinged uh, Ryan Corey over at Cyberary before the interview. Um, some of the, yeah, long- he's cool. He's cool, dude. Um, yeah. Some of the long-term listeners on the show might recognize Cyberary. It was the very first deal that we invested in at Newstack, uh, pre-seed round back in 2015, um, which we- Is just- that right? That was your first one? Yeah. Co-led dude, the round. way to go. That's a heck of a cool company. It is a very good one. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> We're very happy. Yeah. yeah very yeah, pleased yeah. you did that one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we talked about it on an episode. This is, year. I mean- Five years ago, but uh, episode number 30 of Investor Stories, if you want to check it out. But uh, Ryan asked for this uh, for this episode, one, wanted me to ask you, as a company leaves the product market fit stage and reaches scale, what is the job of the CEO or how does the job of the CEO change as the company is scaling? Mm, okay. So I think that let's talk a little bit about scaling first and how that impacts the CEO's job. So the, the first struggle pre-scale is, man, how do I have something the world wants? Then once you hit scale, it's like, wow, the world really wants this. How do I fulfill that demand? <laughs> right. And how do I keep stoking that demand so they continue to want it? Right. Right. So I kind of think to say product market fit ends is a bit of a, a mistake because the markets are dynamic. You know, these little complex system things out there, there are emerging qualities that we have to satisfy. So in order to scale and keep going, I think you're always kind of solving product market fit. Markets move. Markets want more. You know, uh, markets get conditioned to your current product and demand more from you to be, to be engaged and loyal, right? So I kind of feel like these things are, you know, you never get there. I mean, I think it's like whatever you have today, there's a diminishing return on it. And so we have to continue to continue to invest and innovate to do that. So the secret to scaling, in my view, is to embrace the fact that we always have to innovate and find better fit, to embrace the fact that the market's going to move on us and not get pissed off about it, but say, yep, it moved on us. Our cheese moved around a little bit. You know, we got to do something new. So that's, that's sort of the, the demand stuff. And that's, a, that's product work. That's go-to-market work. That's customer care work, all that work. Then there's this inside work of holy cannoli. We're doing such a good job 
innovating with the market? How in the world do we keep up? And I think there, CEOs need to get super intentional about their internal growth system. So here's what I mean by that. I think the first thing to understand there is to anticipate what talent, skills, and systems one needs to fulfill next year's demand, then to figure out how long it takes you to build that kind of stuff and create that kind of stuff and hire accordingly and build the systems accordingly and innovate processes accordingly. One of my coaches is fellow Carl Isgren, who built Owen Healthcare years ago. I used to go to him because, man, I'd, I'd screw stuff up and break it all the time and you know feel sorry for myself and pout a little bit. Okay. And I'd go talk to Carl and you're like, man, you're an idiot. You don't get it. As long as you're growing fast, things are going to break all the time. This is just how life goes. If you don't want things to break, grow slower. Interesting perspective. Okay. So, so this is my thing about scaling. It's going to break. Our job as CEO, try to anticipate it before it breaks and, you know, swap out a process, improve a leader, you know, change a product dynamic, create a new tool. Right. And so, so if you just look at a growth system as a multivariable equation, you know, as a complex system, the CEO's job, I think, is to really understand these interaction points and to look at these friction points and to understand that fixing one friction point doesn't necessarily accelerate the system. Right. It's actually really hard. It's, it's, uh, you know, look, I'm old, dude. So I remember that stupid whack a mole game where a mole whacks up and you puts his head, you're supposed to pop it. You know, that, that, that's actually not the right model. <laughs> right. That's just the most urgent thing bugging you. Right. And it just, and it's just, you get past that little urgent thing and the next problem reveals itself. So to me, if you want to scale well, become a, a systems, a holistic systems thinker and get really clear about your growth system, understand these growth systems have customer issues, uh, employee issues, IT issues, go to market issues, macro environment issues, corporate culture issues. And when you can get a heuristic that wraps around all that, man, you can sustainably scale. I mean, look how Amazon's done it, right? I mean, you know, whatever Amazon is, was last year, it's a lot different today all over the place. I mean, you've got to innovate across all those vectors all the time. And there's this relentless thinking that, man, whatever I am today is inadequate for my future. So I got to keep, I got to keep changing. I love it. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation I was having earlier this week with uh, one of our LPs, a friend of mine named Seth. We were talking about sort of this evolution of, you know, wants and needs and how those become table stakes, right? You go out and address the biggest problem. Great. Yeah. Good job. Add a boy, pat yeah. on the back. And then it becomes stable stakes and you got to evolve. You got to find the next thing, you know, the next. Yeah. Cause customer needs, like they don't care what you did last year. They, just, they got new problems now. That's right. These things are all relationships. Okay. So I've been married 26 years and here's what I know about being married 26 years in the relationship with my beautiful bride. So we are college sweethearts, love this woman more than I love myself. And I can tell you in our relationship, we're either getting stronger or we're getting weaker. There's no medium. There's no neutral, right? That's like that with my friends. It's like that with my kids. And it's like that with all of our customers. It's like that with all of our employees. It's like that with all of our partners, our colleagues. Either we're getting better or we're going backwards. There's no neutral. I think we trick ourselves like, oh yeah, I'm still good with that dude. When was the last time you called that guy? How do you know you're good? <laughs> good point. Right? Right. This is our minds want us to believe all this stuff is stable. It ain't stable, dude. It's dynamic. I'm a bunch of carbon sitting on a rock flying through space at a high velocity. Okay. Everything's flying at high velocity all around us. 
And so let's embrace the fact that things are moving. And let's embrace the fact that every day we got to get 1% better. We got to get a little bit stronger with all these constituents. We do that scale forever. And I'm trying to stay married at least 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> I just had my, my 11 year anniversary. So I'm uh Hey, congrats, man. You. No, that's Thank big you, time, sir. right? Yeah, that's big time. It's great. It's great. Certainly wouldn't be here without, without my better half, but uh, you know, how do you, how do you coach a CEO to maintain this pace, this hustle, this focus on getting better while also having sort of that long-term horizon, long-term vision and not sort of getting out in front of their skis? You know, it's very interesting. It's hard. It's hard. You know, life has these beautiful mysteries in it, and this is one of them, right? A mystery. How do we play a long-term game and be obsessed about what we got done today, right? Isn't that cool, right? I mean, this is yin and yang kind of stuff, <laughs> all right? So, so in my experience, the first thing is to make sure we have a Vulcan mind meld around what I would call a growth mindset, right? In order to have a growth mindset, the feedback office needs to be open, meaning we can we can process, accept data that conflict with our home movie because we all have a home movie. You know, we're walking around projecting it everywhere we go. All right. So if our feedback office is open and we can pull in other data, you know, prerequisite number one for a growth mindset. Prerequisite number two is to be able to act on that data opportunistically, not defensively, right, but opportunistically. And so when, when I try to spend time coaching people on this stuff, most entrepreneurs you meet have a, have an opportunistic mindset anyway, right? They're going for it, man. Mm-hmm. Or else they wouldn't be, you know, this is back to that frontier thinking. I mean, they wouldn't be pursuing it if they didn't have ambition and pride and, you know, be irrational nut jobs and all these things, these wonderful things. Okay. Now the trick is like, all right, we got to play a short-term and a long-term game at the same time. Yeah, man, this is level five leadership. This is the Stockdale paradox. I got to be super paranoid yet confident we will make it. To me, that's the growth mindset thing. The super paranoid helps us understand that there's plenty of data out there that conflicts with our home movie that we need to process and take into consideration to drive up our probability of success, right? The, the optim, long-term optimism just means that as we go through a J-curve and get kicked in all sorts of places that it hurts, we're not going to quit, that we're persistent little buggers. And this is where grit makes the difference. Because every, every company has a J-curve regularly. It's just how it goes. Right. Right. You're on top in April. You fall down in May. Right. You know, right. This is that Frank Sinatra song, My Way. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. come on. <laughs> Life know? is just, not hockey sticks all up to the right. Oh, man. Only in, only in PowerPoint. Right. This is why <laughs> companies are banning PowerPoint all over. No more hockey sticks. Right. Let's just deal with the real stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. So so I just think that it's it's how can we help people? To me, it's it's a magical mystery. It really is. It's about, man, we have to deal with the reality, yet be opportunistic about our future, cast a vision that's palpable, and knock down all this conflicting data to navigate it. It's freaking awesome. It's cool. Well, I'm glad you saw similar things in our friends Ryan and Ralph over at Cybrary that that we did. Oh yeah, Cybrary is fantastic for everybody that doesn't know that company man, you should check it out and become a customer. Yeah, (laughs) 100%. Um, At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. 
Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. So, hey, you mentioned, you know, some of these big tech sort of monopolies, Goliaths, before. We're in the business, of course, of backing the upstarts out there that are trying to, yep. you know, carve out their business. And we're in an environment now where these large tech companies have monopolized, you know, a lot of the market, a lot of the upside. Of course, you know, recently these CEOs appeared in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, and that was kind of an interesting exercise overall. But, you know, I didn't watch it. Did you watch any of it? I, I saw uh, Bezos. That's it. Okay. You know, where do you stand on the position of large tech companies and, and how, you know, that impacts the emerging startups? I think it's bad for emerging startups. You know, look, I, I mean, I'll just state it plainly. I think anytime somebody goes from not being the richest guy in the world on a self-made basis to being the richest guy in the world, there's probably something that we need to check out there. <laughs> All right. And the, to me, this is just a hundred years later, we have modern day trusts. You know, we had the trust barons a hundred years, Robert barons hundred years ago with trust. We got the same thing now with the four horsemen or whatever we want to call them. Look, these things are amazing companies. I don't think they're evil or anything. They're amazing companies. I mean, you know, good on them to create what they've created, right? Fantastic. God bless them. They've made all of our lives better and they've made fortunes for themselves, right? I just think we're at a spot now where competitively, man, you know, try to be a consumer internet company and compete today. Good Lord, that's rough. All right. So I, I think we need a 21st century approach to how to open up competitiveness in markets again. You know, whether it's sharing the data, you know, it's got to be something like that. I mean, it's no different than where we were before the telecom act, you know, with AT&T. Okay. Then we passed that telecom act in the late nineties and or maybe it was 2000, we passed that, and, you know, and telecom had a revolution. I think it's the same thing now. And I, I think we underestimate I think regulators or, you know, uh, leadership, whatever, doesn't have its arm around the value of the data here and how those insights just make it brutal for anybody else to show up and compete and how a lot of consumers, you know, shared their data without really knowing what's going on. Sure. Um, so, so I just think that I think it's important for, from an economic growth point of view for us to open the landscape. If you had to predict, how do you think this plays out? Do you think some of these companies get broken up? Or do you think they consolidate power and, and grow further and expand their, their data moats? Well, you know, one of my favorite presidents is Teddy Roosevelt. He's a trust buster. He's a hunter. You know, I like to go hunting too. I'm fifth generation Texan. This is what we do down here. Okay. And so, man, if, if we had, if we could bust Teddy out of the, you know, the ice, <laughs> wherever he is, then I think we have a good chance. You know, I don't, I tell you, I, I, I think like 
many of our fellow citizens, you know, I scratch my head around exactly how we're going to pull all this off. So I don't have a forecast. But what I do know is, look, I think you can always count on America to do the right thing after we've exhausted every other possibility. And I think what we're living through right now is that every other possibility part. Okay, so I actually think that, you know, entrepreneurship runs deep in our country. I think we will open the competitive landscape for people. I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure what the right framework ought to be. That'd be a heck of a fun problem to go to work on for a few years. I mean, golly, that'd be awesome. All right. Um, so I think it's worth pursuing. Okay. And, and I think we'll actually get there. Uh, Lanham, what resources have you found particularly valuable that you'd recommend to listeners? I'm sure there's a lot to pick from here. Yeah. You know, there's sort of one of my favorite podcasts of, about investing is invest with the best. Oh yeah. It's a good one. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Right. You know, everybody talks about, you know, how I did this and all that. I think those things are really well known. So, you know, I'm constantly searching the long tail, right. For new, new sources of wisdom. So lately I've been doing a lot of the economist podcasts. It's a good one. You know, which, and I appreciate those. Look, I think for, for, for things that I read, you know, I, I uh, think how to put this. I really enjoy sort of what I call cross fertilization. The idea of taking concepts in one discipline and applying them into a new one, you know, so, so the notion of, you know, systems thinking into how to scale, which we touched on a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. but to me, that's very interesting stuff. Okay. And so some of the things I read, I mean, I've literally got a bag of books over here. Okay. It's everything from history because I've been thinking about the monopoly problem. So that's why I, I literally just reread Teddy Roosevelt's biography not long ago. We just got several, but one of them. Okay. You know, I like that. You know, Ray Dalio had a couple book recommendations. So I read his book. That was a big book. All right. Um, you know, a lot of pages in that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but then he recommended another great one called the lessons of history by Will Durant. That one's much shorter. Okay. So you might want to start with that one. All right. You know, enjoyed that one a bunch, you know, then on investing books, I've read everything from you know, classic investing books like, you know, from Graham and Dodd, okay, and, you know, Jeremy Siegel kind of stuff to, uh, you know, much more modern monetary theory stuff, okay? And, you know, so I kind of read all over the place. And what I'm doing intentionally is trying to select things that fit for me. Landon, what do you know you need to get better at? Oh, I got lots of blind spots, you know, just how it goes, okay? And so one of my one of my blind spots is I'm stubborn. It may take you two times kicking in the door before you kick it in with me to get that feedback office open. I'm a stubborn little bugger, man. I got a high level of self-assurance and I think I'm right. The good <laughs> news is if you smash me a couple of times, I'll actually change my mind. Okay. So if you can't change your mind, you can't change anything. All right. So uh, that's a blind spot. I'd like to get that down to one hard kick. It'd save <laughs> a lot of, it would relieve a lot of drama in my life. Maybe a kick with right? some data. That might help. Yeah, that's right, man. Show up with some data, one good kick right in the knee instead of the crotch, you know, appreciate it. Okay. So, so that's a blind spot. I mean, I think other blind spots I have, the, you know, I've become more of a macro thinker and less of a micro thinker Mm. as I've gone through life. I don't know why, you know, just how it's worked out for me. Okay. So, you know, I try to surround myself with better micro thinkers than I am. All right. You know, those are a couple good ones. The other thing for me, you know, is it's just, uh, I'm an emotional guy. I got to smooth that out, man. The valleys need to be a little higher and the peaks need to be a little lower. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it's hard, dude. It's hard for me. I mean, I know some people that are like cool as a cucumber all the time. 
I'm not a cat. You know, like if, if I were a professional football coach, I mean, I'd be running around going bananas, you know, <laughs> where some of those guys like, you know, Belichick or whatever, he's just cold as ice all game. I don't know how that's not me, you know? So I'm trying to understand how the wizards like that pull that off. Yeah. It seems like a hazard of the job. You know, a lot of people, uh, have those swings. Um, any last pieces of advice that you would leave with the, uh, maybe the founders out there that are, you know, trying to build the next great defining tech company? Yeah. You know, a couple things just for them to chew on. Number one, I'd encourage you to, to play a long game. Number two, I'd encourage you to get a diagnostic around what you're really good at and intentionally construct your teams and company around your strengths. You know, amplifying your strengths is better than offsetting a weakness. You know, and so I think it's the founder's strengths and moments of greatness that will lead their company to produce incredible things. Number three, figure out how to put your soul into it. And what I mean by that is not to, you know, work every minute of every day on it, but to inject, you know, into your life intentional thought around what you want it to be. What I mean is, I think all of us, at least I'll just own it for me. I'm a pretty busy dude. And sometimes being busy keeps me numb and keeps me from asking myself really hard questions. Okay. And I think as founders, we're all super busy, but if we can ask ourselves a few hard questions and we can align the answer to those questions with what we do professionally, I think that's a pretty joyous feedback loop, you know? And so just being intentional about how we want to measure our life. I mean, I remember I read Clayton Christensen's book a few years ago how to measure a lot. How will you, the question is, how will you measure your life? It's very thought provoking, you know? And so I just kind of feel like as founders, if you, if you think about this, I'd, my last piece is, man, I'd go for greatness on all of it. I would go for greatness in your professional life. I go for greatness in the quality of relationships you have with other people. I go for greatness with your health. You know, I go for greatness with your family and I would not, I'd encourage you not to settle, right? So you're doing the entrepreneurship thing. You know, you got a lot of courage and you got a lot of uh, willpower. And I think, you know, you look across statistics in our country, tends to be a lot of personal pain and sacrifice around being a founder. Uh, Some founders end up with that and some don't. So I kind of think you can navigate that in a way to elevate greatness across all of it. So that's how I'd encourage people. Well said, sir. And, uh, you know, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you and follow Bill Group? Uh, so, you know, we certainly go to our website. You know, if you want to connect to me, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Well, there it is. The man is Landon Napier. Uh, the firm is Bill Group. Thanks so much for spending the time with us today. I, I really enjoyed the session and uh, look forward to finding more to work on, not just Cyberary. All right, man. Go Bears, dude, right? That's right. That's right. If they can play, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I figure I think they need those that TV revenue. I bet they play. All right. I hope you're right. <laughs> All right. See All right. You, man. Take care. Thank you for having me on. Bye-bye. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. 